Welcome to Imago Day, the show that brings you theological and philosophical reflections for today's world. This is Joe Terry. And I'm Lewis. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about our favorite philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. Very excited. Buckle your seatbelts and grab a glass of wine. And if you don't like wine, then drink some grape juice and enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> St. Augustine, of course. Aquinas, my favorite Kierkegaard. Oh, wait until you hear his love story. It will make you swoon. A difficult and brilliant young man called Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard's philosophy is very theistic. Anxiety-ridden, often hilarious Danish 19th century philosopher. Which is why he is now often called the father of existentialism. Existentialism is a, is a branch of philosophy that is really fundamentally concerned about the, the mode of human existence. And in one sense, it um, seeks to sort of critique much of the history of Western philosophy as it, it, by really saying that much of Western philosophy post Plato has been a form of kind of intellectual masturbation, mm. you know, uh, what does that mean? Philosophy has been very good at systematizing, analyzing, and, and ruminating about a number of theoretical ideas and systems, and it stays within the, the rational, and it's deeply tied to uh, certain forms of a priori reasoning and logic, and it's good at um, articulating systems and theories but doesn't necessarily have a direct impact on one's life in the here and now. So like the practical side yeah. of philosophy. Yeah, yeah. And, and so Kierkegaard himself is revolting against going against a sort of Hegelian philosophy that systematizes and that works uh, in that sort of group dynamic. So uh, he's, he's going against Frederick Hegel and, and some other uh, thinkers, but by and large, he's he's really seeking to go against much of the trajectory of Western philosophy that has stayed typically around the head, thinking good, deep thoughts, but again, not bearing fruit in one's life. Can you describe the the state of Christianity during Kierkegaard's time and, and Christendom and, and why why was Kierkegaard always attacking the church of his day? Like, it just brief summary, because I think that's really important to, to have that perspective when reading Kierkegaard as well. To be a Dane and to be a European at large meant you were a Christian mm -hmm. at the time. Um, Christianity was deeply connected to a political office uh, and, and just the everyday life of, of a Danish person. And... Um, in that sense, it was omnipresent uh, in, in, in life and in action, but in the wrong kind of sense for Kierkegaard. Uh, it was a cultural accretion. It was just uh, there, but didn't Christendom in that sense, didn't lay serious claim to the individual with regards to how he or she lived his or her life. Um, there wasn't the call of the cross. Uh, there wasn't a seriousness uh, with regards to discipleship and what it meant to really follow Jesus in the here and now. So uh, Christendom was everywhere yet nowhere. Mm -hmm. Christendom was a given yet 
never actually accessible. Mm-hmm. And and because of that, Kierkegaard sees his mission as recovering what genuine Christianity is all about and what it means for the individual. The fact that you can even speak of the individual as individual uh, required tremendous philosophical thrust. Kierkegaard saw himself as, a, as metaphorically speaking, as a person who would, who would want to come into people's homes at around 2 or 3 a.m. as they're deep in sleep, um, stand over them with a mirror quickly put the light on, slap them in their face. And as they are awakening out of their slumber, like disoriented, like what's going on, the lights are on. And the first thing that they encounter is themselves in the mirror, mm-hmm. right? Without the pretense of mask or posturing, they're seeing themselves in their raw, unadulterated form. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kierkegaard's vision of doing philosophy and being a philosopher really orbited that sort of metaphor. And that is what it means to be a Christian in, 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 in a very serious sense for Kierkegaard, is to be an authentic self, a genuine person uh, in light of the call of Christ. So this is coming from um, Provocations, Spiritual Writings of Kierkegaard. This is uh, chapter 28. And, and this is, I think, coming out of his work, uh, his book, Works of Love. And the title here is Love the Person You See. So should I read the entire? Yeah, All right, let's go. Let's, here it is. I feel like I need to do like the movie voice. <clears throat> In a world. I'll add, I'll add something. All right, all right, cool. <laughs> so he starts by saying, you know, uh, To love another in spite of his weaknesses and errors and imperfections is not perfect love. No, to love is to find him lovable in spite of and together with his weaknesses and errors and imperfections. Then he goes on to say, he said, then he says, you know, let us understand each other and and, and breaks it down by, by writing. Then suppose there were two artists and the one said, I have traveled much and seen much in the world, but I have sought in vain to find someone worth painting. I have found no face with such perfection of beauty that I could make up my mind to paint it. In every face, I have seen one or another little flaw. Therefore, I seek in vain. Would this indicate that this artist was a great artist? Kierkegaard then asks. In contrast, the second one, another artist, he goes on to say, well, I do not pretend to be a very good artist, if one at all. Neither have I traveled very much. But remaining in the little circle closest to me, I have not found a face so insignificant or so full of faults that I still could not discern in it a more beautiful side and discover something glorious. Therefore, I am happy in the art I practice, though I make no claim to be an artist. Then Kierkegaard writes, would this not indicate that precisely this one was the artist, one who, by bringing a certain something with him, found then and there what the much-traveled artist did not find anywhere in the world, perhaps because he did not bring a certain something with him, was not the second of the two the real artist. And so he starts off by, by giving that sort of uh, image there for us. What I find interesting, the first artist is a self-proclaimed artist. He calls himself an artist, and and then he gives his whole spiel. I've been everywhere. This is my interpretation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been everywhere, but I haven't found the right subject. 
the second artist doesn't put that label of an artist on himself. Right. And he also doesn't claim to have this extensive travel history as a first artist. Right. But he's he says, hey, like in what I have encountered, I have always found that thing that that muse in a way from mm. the people that I've met to capture and illustrate. And, they, and he's just thankful for that. And I just love the way he puts it here. He says, the second artist, I have not found a face so insignificant or so full of faults, yeah. uh, faults that I could not discern in it a more beautiful side and discover something glorious. Yeah. The key is discovery. Yeah. For that second artist, as the genuine artist, as the authentic artist. And there's that level of subjectivity that the second artist, he he has to kind of, in a way, discover that thing to to capture Whereas the first artist, it sounds, it's like the first artist is looking for one particular thing. Mm. Whereas the second artist is just open to that thing presenting itself and him just being aware of that second thing. Yeah. Just being aware of that thing to capture. Yeah. And, and that seems to work so well with what, at least in my mind, what I think an artist, a good artist is. And I'm not yeah. an artist at all, but I, I see an artist uh, in many ways revealing the obvious that is not so obvious, mm -hmm. right? Kind of uncovering uh, the beautiful that is hidden in present sight. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and so, yeah, so it, it definitely makes sense. Yeah, like you're just as an artist, you're you are in a particular environment, and you already have limitations to where you are. You have limits to what you can see. Like you have limits to your senses, and through those limitations you create but you're not creating from nothing you're creating from what's in front of you right 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 and it's a, it's such a good analogy to love and i think it's such a great start to this passage and and that's where he goes he goes on to say it is sad it is it is a sad upside downness i love that term upside yeah. downness yeah. <laughs> altogether too common to talk on and on about how the object of love should be before it can be loved hmm. The task is not to find the lovable object, but to find the object before you lovable. Wow. Whether given or chosen, and to be able to continue finding this one lovable, no matter how that person changes. To love is to love the person one sees. And then he goes on to say, as the Apostle John reminds us, quote, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's just... Oof. That's... <laughs> I mean, the Kierkegaard. Man. Now, this, this is where... This is where it gets more interesting because now I'm hearing Kierkegaard talk about unconditional love. Yeah. Which now we're, it's like in a way we're moving away from the aesthetic and unconditional love. It's you're finding love in something that may, it may not be obvious that this thing is lovable. Right. Right. And that's. That's crazy. Yeah. That's very it, crazy. It's crazy. And, and, he, and I love he, he says whether given or chosen. Mm whether given or chosen, you're able to love what, for those who, let's say, are landlocked to the aesthetic mm -hmm. lifestyle, mm -hmm. find unlovable, mm -hmm. right? It's a love that transcends what the beloved can offer the lover. It's just like, I mean, yeah. So in, in a way, it's like it's unrequited love. Yeah, yeah. And it's... 
Wait, can you can you read that line about the lovable object? Yeah. <laughs> can you read that? Find it here. So yeah, yeah. the task is not to find the lovable object, mm -hmm. but to find the object before you mm -hmm. lovable, whether given or chosen, and to be able to continue finding this one lovable, no matter how that person changes. Mm -hmm. To love is to love the person one sees. Mm -hmm. To love is to love the person one sees. I mean, dude, that's really convicting, especially for me. I, I think of my dad. I mean, you know, I love my dad. Yeah. But but my relationship with my dad at times is turbulent. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we trigger each other. Um, nevertheless, I have found, I have discovered regarding my relationship with my dad that I have attempted to hold him to a particular standard that I have of him. Mm -hmm. And... Because he fails, as it were, to to live out the expectations that I have for him as a dad, whether or not the expectations were agreed upon or yeah. right uh, or rational or et cetera, right? Um, you know, he 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 drops the ball. Let's say according to my standard, and so then I react mm. by by distancing myself from him uh, because. In that sense, from a Kierkegaardian lens, I'm unable to love him as he is, or as Kierkegaard would put it, to love the dad that I see all too clearly in the moment, his wow. flaws, his brokenness. And as a son, as the only son, you know, there's that sort of dynamic there and, and, and all of that, I just fail. In my more sober moments, right, in, in the moments of, of, of where I'm really kind of in, in I'm, I'm sort of above the, the triggering dynamic, I'm able to really love him as he is. Yeah. And it comes off not in a pitying way, not, not in a way that's condescending, right? That wouldn't be love, but in a way that is deeply compassionate, a way that is present. Now those are f far and few in between, you know, and I and I'm working on there. It's and not. And it's not easy. It's not easy, but that that's what comes to mind when I read that passage. Yeah, you know, for me, I think about the people that I don't know, because it's it's talking about loving the person you see, and I encountered probably if we were to add up the amount of strangers that I were to like just come across and just travels, you know, we're talking hundreds of people right. in this big city that I see. And, and it's funny, I'll, always, I'll see interesting, I'll see a person on the street and just wonder like, what's their story? You know, like, who is this person? Yeah. But to have this challenge to love that person and to see through their flaws, mm. I can't even wrap my head around that. Like, I don't even know how, how do I do that as a Christian, as, as someone commanded to love? And to display God's love as best as I possibly can. It's how do you, how do you look past the person's flaws? Mm. You know, how do you look past that? If, yeah, if that's yeah. all you see. Uh, right, right. And, and for Kierkegaard, it seems, and we can kind of double back on this passage. It mm -hmm. seems that he wouldn't want us to look past the flaws because to look past the flaws is to once again miss the person yeah. in their totality. Mm -hmm. But to love them in their totality, which means embracing even their flaws. Wow. Now, love, um, as Kierkegaard would, would have us to understand, is not mere, a, a kind of love that is simply mere acceptance, but it is a, a transformative embrace. So that if the love is genuine, the love is such that it accepts the person where that person is 
for the sake of that person's good and if that and and that and open to that person becoming better as it were yeah. right love has that transformative dynamic there but let me continue to read the second sure, part sure. of the passage because he points to christ right and we're you and i are like you know we're trying to follow jesus here we are yeah. christians like, yeah how do we do this you know exactly let's see what he says here. he says consider how christ looked on peter once he had denied jesus was it a repelling look a look of rejection no care god says he says no it was a look such as a mother gives her child when the child is in danger due to its own indiscretion. Since she cannot approach and snatch the child from danger, she catches him off guard with a reproachful but saving look. Was Peter in danger then? Alas, we do not understand how serious it is for one to betray his friend. But in the passion of anger or hurt, the injured friend cannot see that it is the denier who is in danger. Yet the Savior, yet the Savior saw clearly that it was Peter who was in danger and not him, and that it was Peter who needed saving. The Savior of the world did not make the mistake of regarding his cause as lost because Peter did not hurry to help him. Rather, he saw Peter as lost if he did not hurry to save him. Wow. What we, a paradigm shift. Yeah. We, that is a paradigm. I, I, I'm kind of lost on that one just because of how it shifts. Yeah. And so I, I need some help here. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what it seems like, Pete, what, what it seems like, uh, Kierkegaard is saying here is Jesus was able to see Peter from the from the perspective of love. He was able that Jesus was able to maintain that perspective that he didn't that the offense that Jesus could have felt right by peter denying jesus did not lead the way in jesus reaction to peter wow jesus was able to by virtue of his able his ability to differentiate his emotional and spiritual maturity to to respond to peter with a loving look it was a look of reproach but for the sake of peter Mm-hmm. For the sake of Peter, not for the sake of Christ, mm-hmm. right? That Jesus was able to continue to see Peter in this sense, to see Peter in danger. Even though Jesus is the one who is being beaten and spit on and the one who just saw that his own boy rejected him. Yeah. So that's kind of what Kierkegaard is saying there. He's yeah. saying that Jesus was able to see how in danger Peter was, even though, even though Jesus is the one who just got snuffed, as yeah. it were, by his own boy, got played, crazy, crazy. <laughs> crazy. Yeah, that's the last line. Rather, he saw Peter as lost, as if he did not hurry to save him. That's who plays it there. So the, the Savior of the world did not make the mistake of regarding his cause, Jesus' cause, as lost because Peter did not hurry to help him. Rather, he saw Peter as lost if he did not hurry to save him. So he kind of flips it right there. Yeah. It's like boom. Yeah. Crazy. Absolutely. Let me continue. Sure. Christ's love for Peter was so boundless that in loving Peter, he accomplished loving the person one sees. He did not say, Peter, you must first change and become another man before I can love you again. Hmm. 
No, he said just the opposite. Peter, you are Peter, and I love you. Love, if anything, will help you to become a different person. Christ did not break off his friendship with Peter and then renew it again when Peter had become a different man. No, he preserved the friendship and in this way helped Peter to become another man. Do you think that Peter would have ever been one again without such faithful love? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we can go home now. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's that's just, it. It's done. <laughs> There's not, what is... Uh, I, felt, I felt very convicted mm. by the hypothetical of what Christ could have said to Peter. You know, that, that conditional love, because I've, I've been guilty of that many times with, with even the people that I'm closest with, you know, that just that level of conditional love. It's like, ah, oh, like, why'd you have to do this? You know, it's making it harder for me to love you in a way. I know. You know, it happens know. all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We fo- Kierkegaard says, we foolish people often think that when a person has changed for the worse, we are exempted from loving him. Mm-hmm. And he goes on, what a confusion in language to be exempt from loving as if it were a matter of compulsion, a burden one wished to cast away. If this is how you see the person, then you really do not see him. You merely see unworthiness, imperfection, and admit thereby that when you loved him, you did not really see him, but saw only his excellence and perfection. Mm -hmm. True love is a matter of loving the very person you see. The emphasis is not on loving the perfections, but on loving the person you see. No matter what perfections or imperfections that person might possess. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. And hey, guess what? We just got an email. So send us your questions, comments, or feedback to imagodaypodcast at gmail.com. That's I-M-A-G-O-D-E-I podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.